Greetings, Starfighters. Thank you for tuning into Rune Childhoods. Maybe you're a subscriber. Maybe you saw there's a podcast talking about after hours. I'm sure we're not the first. I'm sure we won't be the last. Anyway, we're glad you're listening. Uh, I'm listening. I'm glad at least you're listening, John. Uh, I'm glad someone's listening. As I just mentioned, that is the aforementioned John uh, on the other end there. And I'm Dan. And and hey, yeah, we're here to we we're here to talk about movies, specifically after hours. You okay, Dan? I am great. <laughs> no, I'm wonderful. What? Oh no you you were you were coming in really hot, and yeah. uh, I just wanted to check in with you. Oh no, I'm just I'm excited. You know, for those uh, you know, just to, a little behind the curtain here. This is a we usually record in the evenings. Uh, That's true. A- after our after hours, children's bedtime. After hours, exactly. After hours. Uh, all, yeah, is it weird that we're recording our after hours episode like in the middle of the day? Isn't it ironic? Should we be doing this at like one a.m. instead of one p.m.? Just like from two phone booths somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you can find them tape record there is a payphone. it's not a phone booth but there is a well, pay- yeah i i know yeah. where there's some payphones in the little like you know open air kiosks but not a uh traditional booth i have seen a phone the last place i saw a phone booth was like i was taking a walk around my neighborhood and it was like there was one in like someone's backyard like it was just like an old like someone just dumped it there i have no i did somebody dump it there or is it like a cool Time machine thing that somebody's I, <laughs> doing, not a oh. time machine. Well, okay, that was where where I went, and you know that's fine. <laughs> that's that's me. I was like, oh, is it? It didn't have the thing on top, so I pretty quickly determined it was not a time machine. At least not the time machine from the Bill and Ted trilogy. So, right. um, but anyhow, John, um, I'm I'm also excited, and I'm also I'm high energy in uh in tribute to Martin Scorsese. This is After Hours is our first Martin Scorsese film that we're covering on the podcast, and Scorsese is one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. One of my, you know, um, I wasn't. It wasn't until college when I uh, was friends with uh, Dave. 
David Patrick Kelly. Uh, not David Patrick Kelly. Um, David James Kelly. Uh, I was say, David Patrick Kelly, isn't that the Warriors come out and play actor? Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I went to a party Amongst in many other things. Amongst he, many other things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's seriously. not the person you're no, talking no, no. about. Uh, Dave Kelly, um, uh, who has since become a, a successful screenwriter. Um, he, I the I know he's done more, but the the latest big screen adaptation of Robin Hood with Taron oh, Egerton, nice. Jamie Foxx, uh, and Ben Mendelsohn. He he did that um, amongst amongst other things. But anyway, he uh, at least at the time was big into Scorsese, and it was like I my director was was Kubrick that I came to oh, college yeah, yeah. loving, and I was just like all about Kubrick, and much easier to cover Kubrick's filmography. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, Scorsese, uh, has, has produced so much, uh, oh yeah. Well, I mean, especially if you count the things he's just produced, produced, right. But yeah. if you're talking about well, directed, you know, even still, that's a very long list. Prolific even if you director. narrow it to the, to the narrative films, yeah. it's a long list. Um, in, in fact, I, John, I, I'm curious to know, like for you, would it take more time to list the Scorsese films you have seen or the ones you haven't? Uh, I can tell you, uh, I mean, do you want to like run down his list and I'll, I'll, I can tell you yes or no. Yes, we will. We will <laughs> do that now. Um, I will, sh- I think we'll, we'll stick to the, to narrative films. Yeah, let's do that. And also I will just, and, and just his directorial films, I'm assuming, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'll also mention that, uh, Martin Scorsese is not my favorite director. Uh, far from it. Um, I respect the work that he's done and the impact that he's had on cinema. But I'd say not only has he not made some movies that I don't care for, but the only movie that I've ever walked out of in the theater. Yes, I- I know we're going to get to it and I know it's a movie we'll get that, to it right now. that we feel vastly different about. But speaking of that, that movie, Hugo, right? Hugo. Like, yeah. We don't need to be, um, all we don't talk about, about Hugo. Um, so Hugo, which I, uh, uh, which I really liked, um, but it exemplifies how, even though I think when we think of Scorsese, we think of like gritty urban drama, we think New York, we think, you know, maybe Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, um, you know, Casino, films like that, The Departed. But you look at a film the like Departed. Hugo. What's that? The Departed. The Departed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wonderful, wonderful uh, accents in, in that um, and at least some of them, you know, authentic Mark, Mark Wahlberg and Matt authentic, Damon. authentic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I'm just repeating things right now. So anyway, <laughs> let's go through the Martin, Martin Scorsese's directed features. Are okay? we going chronologically? We are going chronologically okay, from let's do it. starting with 1967's Who's That Knocking on My Door? Nope. N- neither have I. Okay. 1972 Boxcar Bertha. I have not. Neither have I. Okay. Okay. 1973, Mean Streets. Uh, I don't think I've actually seen it in its entirety. I think I, that I put, I've, if I remember correctly, I put it on late at night, fell asleep, um, haven't gotten back to it. Would love to, though. Yeah. Um. I have not seen it, I think, since college. I think since, uh, you know, Dave Kelly's 
dorm room watching it on VHS. <laughs> so uh, it's definitely one I want to revisit, but I have seen it. Um, uh, unlike 1974's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Have not seen it. See, that's one that I feel like you might be that like, again, not the typical Scorsese from what I know of it, that that one, when I think of like the type of like your the films that you tend to gravitate okay. towards, I mean, it's a which is a wide range, folks. Yeah. Wide yeah. range. Um, Just not often Martin Scorsese. Definitely not the crime dramas. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Kind of more of a character study, much like the film of his that I have seen. I I don't know if I've seen this one the most, but I definitely watched it a lot when I was preparing to play John Hinckley in Assassins. John Hinckley saw Taxi Driver in the theater. I think it says in the script seven times. I, I like Taxi Driver a lot. Taxi Drivers. I've always been a big Taxi Driver fan. I was one of yep. those college dorm rooms with a taxi driver, like not a poster, but, you know, a kind of like a more of an artistic kind of like a handbill kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Taxi taxi drivers. Definitely. It's one of those that for me as a Scorsese fan, I would I, I think rank it in my top three. It's great. Of his films. It's a brilliant. It's wonderful. De Niro's just a fucking animal in it. Um, um, but I can't comment on his performance in 1977's New York, New York, because I haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. Okay. I would like to. That one's, I want to get to that, but it's like never really streaming anywhere. And I don't know that I want to go to the lengths of, you know, like renting it. Um, at some point I might at some point. Uh, so his his more Scorsese's foray into musicals, um, which it's actually now been adapted into a stage musical. Um, Oh yeah. And is most notable for being the the film that the song New York, New York was written for. I did not know that. Yeah. I think most people just assume if they've heard of the film, that the film was named for the song. That's what I assumed. Other way around. Um, uh, 1980s raging bull I like Raging Bull. I like Raging Bull. It's one that I feel is, I think it it is, it's a showcase of a lot of, of a lot of things. I think editing. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's Mar- a, a, lot, a lot of his it, films just are like, he also worked, he also like tended, like once he got, once he found a cinematographer or an editor that really clicked with him, he really, he stuck with it. Yeah. I'm sorry. So uh, Thelma Shoemaker. Uh, yes. is his editor, <laughs> you know, uh, going back. Uh, I don't, what was their first thing that they did together? Um, I mean, who, who's that it knocking at been, my door? Yeah. Oh, was who's that knocking at my door? Yeah. Um, and then Raging Bull and then not for a few until one that you're probably going to mention either next or soon. I'm running through all of them. Yeah. So well, I, yeah, I'm just no. trying to think of what, where oh, this, because the, the next one that she did was King of Comedy. Which was the next film that Scorsese made after Raging Bull. I like King of Comedy. I'm a I, big fan of King of Comedy. Yeah, I, it's a really fascinating movie. Uh, another great Robert De Niro performance. And, you know, the range that Robert De Niro gives in Martin Scorsese films, if you really look at it, is pretty wide. Uh, it might seem like it's maybe not so much because there are a lot of very similar roles that he has in, in a lot of Scorsese movies, uh, going, going further into the future. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's like this one, Rupert Pumpkin, uh, Pumpkin, who uh, he plays in King of Comedy. People kind of compared him to Travis Bickle in uh, Taxi Driver, which like there's some I I definitely see the the commonality. But but De Niro does not like just repeat the performance. No, Uh, no, 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 no. no. De Niro is wonderful. And I would say anyone who's seen Todd Phillips Joker uh, but hasn't seen King of Comedy or Taxi Driver should definitely like it is clearly a a, a pastiche of those. And I and it's I, more than a pastiche. I appreciated it. I appreciated it for what it was. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, so the next film after King of Comedy is Today's After Hours, which I'm pretty sure we've both seen I, recently. Very recently. Um, it is my favorite Scorsese movie. And it, and as somebody who's not a big Scorsese fan, I will say not only is it my favorite Scorsese movie, but it's a movie that I actually really really like. Yeah, and I mean we're going to of course spend we're going to go well much into of the rest it. of the episode yeah. talking about that. So I'm just going to move on to and the film that Scorsese used to to revive his career um because it was not going so well was The Color of Money. I actually haven't seen The Color of Money. We're going to, someday we'll do an episode, Color of Money, uh, sequel to The Hustler. Right. I guess I didn't even realize that he did The Color of Money. Right. Yeah. It just doesn't uh, seem like it fits the uh, the profile. A Buena Vista. Yeah. His first uh, Disney film there. Uh, and uh, a great movie like Tom Cruise, just like Tom Cruise hitting his stride and really like playing it. It's the time it's, it's like, I think not the beginning of the evolution into the character he plays in rain man, but it's kind of like on its way there. Gotcha. Oh, spe- cocky, sorry. you know, smarmy guy. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, all I'm going to say right now is I just was a speaking of rain man, uh, tip of the cap to Barry. Uh, <laughs> what an amazing, amazing series. Uh, yes. Uh, anyway, I'm just going to leave that there. Uh, so after The Color of Money comes 1988's The Last Temptation of Christ, a movie he had been trying to get made right. forever. And actually, he got the he was originally given a novel by Barbara Hershey when they were making Boxcar Bertha under the condition that he cast her in it, which he made good on that promise. So I haven't seen it. Uh, I know that this was a movie that he was trying to get made and was actually originally going to be making at the time of After Hours, but uh, the studio funding fell through. And oh, wait, who was going to be his? Tim Burton was going to be the director of After Hours, right? Right? right. Or Which... possibly, possibly. Well, I, but we're, instead, yeah, we're went on get... to Pee Wee's Big Adventure. We're, we're definitely when gonna... he found out that Scorsese was being talked to about it, he was like, "Okay, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and uh, say." I'll I'll go do something else so that I mean yeah and I like everyone <laughs> credit did the, to Tim Burton everyone I mean, did the right thing everyone yeah. did the right thing in that situation yeah but could you uh, imagine though yeah. if the situation ended up meaning that Tim Burton made After Hours which I could totally see and Martin Scorsese ended up directing Pee Wee's Big Adventure I know that it wasn't a part of any discussion at all but could you imagine. 
I would love to visit the alternate universe where that the the happens. everything everywhere all at once universe like you know visit yes. that yes <laughs> such a yes. thing exists i need i i just like i and i think i i don't know if this is true or or what but um i was a I feel like I remember hearing something similar about like Hook and Cape Fear and that like, really? or I think it was like, like Spielberg was going to direct Cape Fear, uh-huh. but he wanted to direct Hook more. So he hired Spielberg produced Cape Fear. So hired uh-huh. Scorsese to direct Cape Fear, which we'll, we'll come back to. Um, Aiden yeah. Quinn was going to originally uh, be Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ. Of course, it ended up being Willem Dafoe. Who can just do fucking Milim Defoe can do everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Apparently. Um, and uh was it David Bowie in in as as Pontius Pilate. So I have seen I was I've been I was watching it because and in, in you know, after watching After Hours and just kind of like thinking about it, and there were some things that I was thinking about with it and that made me want to look more into the trajectory of his career and like why he made certain choices. And I saw that last temptation of Christ was, was streaming on prime um, Mm. that was leaving at the end of April. I, um, so I watched most of it. Um, Gotcha. All right. I I would say maybe like two thirds of it. Like, and it's a, it's just, it's a strange movie. It's like, like Peter Gabriel did the score and there's moments in it that are like almost like a scene you would, I I mean, if I can go into, I'm going to talk about one scene. Sure. In the last temptation of Christ that I was like, what is this? Uh, so um, they're at a a wedding. It's like the brother of one of the apostles got married or something, and uh, um, they're they're all like they're sitting around, and Jesus is a guest at the wedding, and whoever's like brother it was, whichever one of the apostles was like, oh man, like so many more people showed up than we expected, and like we ran out of out of wine, and Jesus goes, what's in those jugs over there? And the guy's like, water, and Jesus is like, you sure about that? What do you mean? You better check. He walks over and I'm not, I am not quoting the scene, but I am not exaggerating. He walks over, dips his like, dips the ladle in, takes a sip. He goes, it's wine. And Jesus just kind of like raises a goblet to him and like almost winks. He doesn't quite wink, but it's like. (laughs) Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it at some point. I'm not rushing to check it out. I mean, it's worth watching because it's like it's interesting. The casting is interesting. Like like Harvey Keitel as Judas, um, <laughs> like and he's a redhead in it. So like redhead Harvey Keitel as Judas. I think that uh, you know it's the director revealing themselves when when Harvey Keitel is cast as you know yeah uh, a role like that it's, it's, it's very it's, much like a you know because Harvey Keitel and Taxi Driver was just you know magnetic and oh, uh, absolutely disgusting. riveting and oh absolutely disgusting. I mean it, absolutely, and, absolutely. and magnetic and riveting yeah, and yeah. yes like you know it's like who's the one person who's just creepier and scarier than Bickle oh that guy 
Oh, the actor Matthew. Harvey Keitel. <laughs> Perhaps it was Matthew. <laughs> mm. Perhaps that was the apostle. Um, all right. So he does Last Temptation of Christ, which uh, is not a, a financial hit, but it's controversial. Definitely gets his name. It out is there. a. I mean, it's a it's a cult classic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's remembered. It is definitely remembered. It is, I, I think it's worth seeing for anybody who is looking at the filmography of Martin Scorsese, especially concerning choices. And it's not as much like, yes, it, um, I'm sure, um, you know, in, in reality, Jesus looked nothing like Willem Dafoe and uh, Judas looked nothing like Harvey Keitel. And of course, and it was made in the eighties, et cetera, et cetera. But it almost feels like there's a, it, it almost feels like there's some intention there because he also does have like a lot of like the, the background actors are all, uh, I would say, appropriately cast. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it, Last Temptation of Christ. Interesting movie. That's the asterisk on the list. The only one that I have seen, not in its entirety, unlike 1990s Goodfellas, which I have seen in its entirety many times i've probably seen it two times maybe i am just not i mean that's not my genre you know (laughs) i yeah i hey you know it's not for everyone (laughs) i i understand why people like it it's kind of to me it's it's kind of like i'm trying to think Uh, i mean i mean I under, the way that you feel about Goodfellas is probably kind of like the way I feel about Billy Joel. Like, I understand. I understand there's something there. I don't get it. It's I, not for me. I tried listening. Actually, it was the last time that I was, maybe I was driving back from Seattle the last time that uh, I was up there. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put on some Billy Joel. And because I was like, I haven't listened to Billy Joel in a long time. And I always just remember being like kind of lukewarm on it. Yeah. And I was listening to it and I was just like, why does why does anybody like this? And sorry for those of you who do. um, But I was like (laughs) a song called Piano Man where I'm sorry, but someone's wailing on the harmonica and the piano is just kind of like fine. Right. And it's kind of like, as you're saying that, and I'm thinking about every time I have just like talked about how little I like Piano Man. And I'm just hearing all the things like, yeah, but the way he paints a picture, um, I'm like, it like, it's that joke from Family Guy where they're like, there's Randy Newman just sitting there and making up songs about whatever he sees happening. And it's. Yeah, I feel like at least Randy Newman had like a satirical outlook. That, that's and what I was going to say. Randy yeah, Newman was kind of like a little bit more snarky it. about everything. Yeah. And, and yes, of course, a very signature sound at times. There are, there's some of his work that he's done in, in film scoring. Right. There's takes film, it a bit Randy of a departure. Newman, the, I love to see you smile. You've got a friend in me. Did you, did you, there was a, what was the movie? Oh, that's the full house theme that I watched. Um, Dan, what was the new movie that I watched where he did the score? But it was like it didn't sound much like a Randy his Newman stuff. score. Oh, Marriage Story. Oh, okay. Um, I feel like there were some we'll other in again. Ah, yeah. you win. He did the score for Meet the Fockers, Sea Biscuit, 
Um, oh, and meet the parents. Okay. Yeah. Um, Michael with John Travolta. Oh, Michael. Oh, um, he did score for the paper. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Ron Howard. Um, yeah. I was going to say. He did speak- score for the natural. Oh, yeah, yes. I think that's because that was that would recent. be. That yeah. that fits the bill. So you would know what's the movie I saw somewhat recently where Randy did the score. Well, yeah, if we do that for long enough. Um, okay, so Goodfellas. I did not see Goodfellas in the theater. Um, but, and, and, like, at some point, if I have the opportunity, like, I would like, although, man, it's intense. And fucking Ray Liotta is, is brilliant yeah, in it. Pour one out. Pesci. I mean, damn. Um... Now, the first Scorsese film I saw in the theater was 1991's Cape Fear. Cape Fear is great. I like Cape Fear a lot. Yep. Yep. The 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 Scorsese De Niro thing is back. Yep. A great remake. And what I love about it is how it works in members of the original cast. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I love Gregory Peck as Katie's lawyer in it. And like, right. De Niro just got like jacked for it. Oh, De Niro's great in it. Uh, De, it, it is like, a, it's a De Niro. It was like the Nick Nolte that, cause that was the same year of like Prince of Tides. Yeah. It was just like, oh man, Jesus, Nick, like this, like 91 was Nick Nolte's year was... to shine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I love Jessica Lang. Um, oh, I, um, Juliet Lewis, Juliet Lewis. Thank you. Uh, like you saw her and you're like, wait a second, isn't that Audrey from the, from the last Christmas? Was, I guess. Christmas yeah. Vacation? I guess if you're just watching it in at that time. Yeah. No, but then, but then she's reinvented and now it's yep. like, Oh, that's, she's, Oh man. And Cape fear. And just like, Oh, it's so icky so much. So many of the scenes and they're so, but like, so shot well and like Scorsese. I love a good, I love a Scorsese thriller. And there's really not that many of them. Well, it's also a it's a family thriller. You know, it's a, yeah, a lot of his stuff. You know, you don't really see a lot of you know kids coming into play, especially up up to this point. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. So to have a story like that, I'll save because wow. because uh, we have not done a, a Cape Fear episode um, over our last I don't know over two almost two hundred episodes. This is episode one hundred and ninety one. Yeah, so um, I'm going to reserve further comment on Gotcha, okay, Cape moving Fear. on. But now another movie. So uh, one of the things I was talking about before is like his versatility and just how he can really, he's like a master of a, a lot of genres and The Age of Innocence, 1993. Okay, I have not seen Age of Innocence. I really want to see Age of Innocence. I was thinking of watching it the other night. Um, I was thinking about, first of all, we just did my left foot. Thinking right. about Daniel Day Lewis, yep. uh, mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer. I was thinking about her because I was watching that uh, HBO series uh, "Love and Death" with Elizabeth okay. Olsen, and there's this one scene with Elizabeth Olsen where I'm looking at her, I'm just like, she could be like a Michelle Pfeiffer replica, you know, in the right situation. Like if you needed to cast a Michelle Pfeiffer relative or something like if you're that, remaking the fabulous Baker boys, Elizabeth Olsen. And I'd love to right there. I, anyway. I'll, I'll still keep Jeff and Bo bridges, but we'll just recast Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, except I'm totally not, kidding. Yeah, I'm, no, that would just be weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, age of innocence. No, I, I guess not... that would probably be like a Hemsworth brother 
situation. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like, because you got to keep it. The Fabulous Baker Boys, part of the charm is that they're actually brothers. They're actually and brothers. And so right? like to get like an actual brother, maybe it's a Jonas Brothers movie. Oh, well, that would work. They're musical. Yeah. Yeah. No, that oh, that would be fun. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm down for the it. The Fabulous Jonas Boys. Yeah. Uh, Nick so yeah, and Ad- Joe, and I think that there's a Kevin who there's people Joe, don't like as much. Joe, Nick, and... I think it's Kevin. I think Kevin. I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's Kevin. That's the only one I'm not sure of, though. Um, so um, Age of Innocence, that's a film I did not... I, I don't even know if I have seen that other than the terrible Columbia TriStar pan and scan VHSs. Ooh, they okay. were like... Uh, I almost I almost respected because their pan and scan was so jittery like you could tell when it was happening and you could tell like when they were adjusting for you know for the the screen size I anyone okay. else <laughs> yes to to okay. to answer your question I feel like uh they're okay so we have you know Gen X and millennials, but what's missing is that generation of people who like were very well aware of pan and scan, you know, (laughs) because there was a while where it was that that was less of an issue. You know, once VHS came about and you're getting all of these like reformatted versions of movies that are quote unquote full screen and you get this pan and scan experience, uh, there's a certain subsect of people who it's just like that's the kind of person who recognizes pan and scan and just like cannot watch it or else their eyes will just completely start bleeding. Right. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, in the early 90s, that was when there really started to be that letterboxing revolution and where, you know, film nerds were like me were, were like, I don't care if I'm watching it on a 13 inch screen. I want it to look I like to I was watching it on the, the movie thing. screen. I, I want to see. The, and and I, I on the Interspace episode way back in the archives. Oh, yeah. Uh, I that believe was... I talked about that being my first experience watching mm. a letter something letterboxed. And yeah. that they showed, like, before the movie, they were like, this is what letterboxing is. This is what you'd be seeing if it wasn't letterboxed. This yeah. is what you're seeing. I've also seen that done with, like, Pulp Fiction and some other films. But Columbia TriStar Home Video um, had just the most mecha- – they were, they were like, we are so I, – I, I wanted to believe that they were like, this sucks, so we're going to make it suck worse. I, I remember it mostly with Ghostbusters. I think of it mostly with a league of their own. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think of all right. So, so I think there's statute of limitations on this is passed. So, um, I would hook up two VCRs and some <laughs> some uh, studios. Their VHS tapes were not copy blocked. Columbia TriStar being, I mean, like I wasn't gonna do like a shitty copy of a Warner Brothers uh, uh-huh. VHS. But the Columbia TriStar VHS is copied over just fine. So it's like I had a lot of those in my, like, like, yes, there was that one, but also like my life with Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman. Oh, wow. Or Malice also with Nicole Kidman and, and Alec Baldwin. Uh, yeah. So anyway, when I think of The Age of Innocence, uh, th- that's another one that fall in, fell into okay. that category. Just want to flag, we're a half hour into this episode and we're like not even halfway through 
Martin Scorsese's filmography. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Here we go. We're going to start steamrolling here. So, all right. 1995, Casino. Have you seen, seen it? it? Yes. Seen it? Um, I saw it in the theater. I don't love it. Yeah. I mean, I saw it, uh, I mean, not in the theater, but on video or something like that and was just not into it. I'd like to try it again, knowing, you know, Sharon Stone, critically acclaimed performance, so on and so forth. Moving on. Sharon Stone's magnificent in it. And there are moments in the movie that I think are great, but then there are other moments where it's like, uh, I kind of wish it wasn't De Niro and Pesci because now it's just like, uh, I'm expecting Goodfellas, but this is really not Goodfellas. So wasn't a big fan of, of Casino. Moving on. Also saw this one in the theater, 1997. Another example of Scorsese going into another genre, uh, his film about the Dalai Lama, Kundun. Haven't seen it. It is a, and another one where the music uh, choice was really interesting because Philip Glass did the score oh. for Kundun. Um, I remember it being beautiful. I have not seen it since I saw it in the theater. I mean, I only know that movie just because of the scene where the Dalai Lama asks a kid to suck his tongue. Oh, wait, no, that was real life like a month ago. Wait, okay. You didn't hear about this? No, I did not The hear Dalai about Lama... The real follow him. <laughs> the real guy was like, the you know, joking around with a kid, and it's all reco- it's all televised. It was on camera, of course. And he's Deep just fake trying AI. to get him to like kiss him on the lips and then suck his tongue. The fuck? Okay, Mo- all real right. life. Moving on before I get in trouble. Okay, 1999. Did not see this in the theater. Totally wish I did. Uh, it is great. A lot of people consider it his um, maybe most underrated, Bringing Out the Dead. I haven't seen it, been wanting to watch it for a while. Um, So I had read the novel prior to seeing it and uh, really thought it was a great adaptation. Um, also, shout out UB40's Red Red Wine is <laughs> on the soundtrack. Uh, so... But even without even even that aside, it's got and uh, isn't that a little isn't that a little late to have UB40 red red wine red red wine on the soundtrack? Never too late for that. (laughs) I also don't know if it necessarily takes place in 1999, but regardless, it's it's fine. And like like it's playing. I don't. I remember. I feel like I remember the circumstance. I feel like they're walking into like basically a drug den to go. It's like Nicolas Cage and John Goodman and Ving Rhames are EMTs in in New York City. Are they trying to portray that a drug dealer listens to reggae but not real reggae? Correct. (laughs) Well, I I think it was more like maybe he just had the Pandora reggae station on, except that it was 1999 and there was no Pandora. Well, maybe it takes place in 2009. Maybe maybe it does. Um, I'll tell you what definitely takes place before Pandora and is perhaps my least favorite Martin Scorsese film of all time, 2002's Gangs of New York. Haven't seen it. I only want to see it because I love DDL. Do you want to see Daniel Day-Lewis's performance from There Will Be Blood in a worse movie? No. Then don't bother. Okay. It has a miscast. I feel like DiCaprio is miscast. I feel like 
Uh, Cameron Diaz is miscast in it. And also the the first 20 minutes of the movie are basically like this showdown between Daniel Day-Lewis and Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. How do you top that? How do you, and spoiler alert, Liam Neeson doesn't make it. Uh, it, it, in How any fight between that? in any fight between Liam Neeson and Daniel Day Lewis, for me, Liam Neeson better not win. No, he does not. He does not make it. But um, anyway, I, for me, it was like the rest of the movie was just downhill. Brendan Gleeson is in it, and I, okay. I like I always like Brendan Gleeson. So, um, but I, I haven't I haven't watched it since the theater. But like I just I remember like I remember I, there are parts of it that are burned into my brain. And I just remember really not liking it. The only thing of value is that it inspired um, one of the sequences in Kung Fu Hustle, uh, which is a brilliant movie. You like Kung Fu Hustle? Love, fucking love Kung Fu Hustle. All right. You know what else was a great movie is 2004's The Aviator, which I saw in, in, in cinemas. Aviator's good. It's a solid biopic. Uh, great Kate Blanchett. You get some Adam Scott in there. Some oh early Adam Scott. I you know what I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater again, but um oh boy, and that's a reason to go back. I thought DiCaprio was great in it. DiCaprio is really good in it. It was right at that time when he was kind of coming out of his like you know boyhood and into manhood moment. So a movie right. in which he in which he ages <laughs> shows a spanning of time uh, worked in his favor. Well, and he I, he doesn't always pull off the older, but I thought in this, yeah, he did. I, I remember yeah. really enjoying it. Um, a movie that grew on me that I wasn't I wasn't as crazy about when I saw it in the theater, but has grown on me since is The Departed. Um, the Departed, yeah, I like I like The Departed. Before mentioned Departed, yeah, yeah it's, I don't it's, like the ending. Um, it's really weird. cheesy. Um, it is also worth for anyone who's a fan of The Departed, very much worth it to watch the original that is based on Infernal Affairs. Hmm. Um, I, Hong Kong, Made Hong Kong, I think. I don't know. Uh, all right. So then he goes. Uh, I think he's doing some documentary stuff. Probably does a Rolling Stones documentary after that. Probably. Um, 2010, Shutter Island. It's one I of those. I saw love Shutter Island. <laughs> Maybe in the theater, if not very shortly after it came out, maybe that was a Netflix DVD that was sent to my house. Uh, um, rip. Yeah. and uh, Not as in rip the DVD, as in RIP Netflix yeah. DVDs. And uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I, I mean, in terms of like, you know, it's a Martin Scorsese kind of horror film, scary movie. Um I thought I walked that it was out. pretty well done. You walked out of it. No, I didn't walk out of it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, after seeing the movie, I walked out of it wishing it had been in black and white. Mm. I really the Snyder I, cut. I that's the thing, like all these other movies that they put out, like like the Mad Max Fury Road black and white. I'm like, I want I, a Shutter Island black and white. You know, thinking about Shutter Island though, like when I think about the look of it, it is in black and white. I think it's just because it's such it's such like a desaturated, you know, vibe. Yeah, the, the accents irritate me a little bit in it, but I I, I, remember. I, yeah. I I liked it. I enjoyed Shutter Island. It was a good one to see in in well, the theater. Also, and also, I mean, think about the last few movies. Few movies that you mentioned. You know, this is his 
DiCaprio era. You know, it's kind of like, oh, is this the new De Niro uh, for Scorsese? Like, has he just found his new pretty little thing? Which is great. Now he's going to cross the streams with Killers of the Flower Moon. Which I am looking forward to. Which I am looking forward to. Interesting. So anyway, the yeah, the movie that uh, so the next movie after that was Hugo, and we already talked about it. But gone there. All I will add about it was that for me, and when I saw it, I saw it in 3D, and I felt like it was the first movie I saw where the 3D was used really effectively to put you in, give you the character's perspective. This was also the era. What year did that come out? 2011. Yeah. So this is right when it's just like. 3D, 3D, 3D. Right. You know, you had uh, Avatar, and uh, there's a lot of movies were just like, okay, well, what can we do that can be in 3D? And uh, yeah, so that was just that era where it, it was, and that. yeah, it was, it was, it was overdone. I definitely like, you know, went to a few of them just because I was like curious. I was like, oh, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. I wonder what he did with 3D, and probably a lot, just a lot. Just a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. The, to me, like, that's Tim Burton just entered into his, like, I'm going to make things that look fun phase. Um, so, but hey, once again, we're not here to talk about Tim Burton. So Hugo, and then 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street. Man. The Wolf of Wall Street, I liked on my first viewing of it. There's a lot of things that I like about it. Jonah Hill's excellent. Jonah it introduced Hill. us to Margot Robbie. Uh-huh. Uh, also, it's, it's the DiCaprio it. era. DiCaprio's fabulous in it. Uh, DiCaprio's fantastic in it. Um, Kyle Chandler is really good. You know, this is right. The in Kyle Friday. Chandler playing an FBI agent era. Yes, this is that era. <laughs> and uh, when I rewatched it kind of recently, it didn't play for me as well as it did the first time. And it's not because I didn't, it's not because like, Oh, well, I've already know what to expect from it. it it's just like, uh, it's exhausting. It, right. Yeah. I, I, I totally, I, I get that. It's a long movie and it's like, there's it. Yeah. Exhausting. I haven't watched it since the theater. You know what? It's a, it's a compelling story. It's a true story. And it's, uh, crafted in a way that is representative of the vibe. And uh, I don't know. I It just didn't do it for me as the same way that it did when I first saw it. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I can only speak for my first the, viewing, which I, I think that there's, enjoyed. There's a lot of movies that I feel get better the more you watch them. This was not one of them. All right. Yeah, I I wouldn't honestly wouldn't expect it to be. Um another one that I've only seen once and I watched it in in parts, but I I really liked it was Silence. Another one that Scorsese was it. trying to make for a long time. I mean, it's very it's it's kind of laborious, but Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield are are yeah. really good in it. It's kind of like complex. It's something where it's like if I had the time, I would watch it again. I feel like a movie that's called Silence, you have to, you know already, just if you only know the title, that this is one that you're just going to have to be in a certain mood to watch. That, that Very true. Very and true. I have not been in that mood yet. No, that mood happens rarely. I think at, at some point I just, it was like, as I'm, 
you know, doing things in the kitchen, cleaning up, watching dishes. And I put on a movie and I was just like, you know what? If I don't watch this now, I'm never going to watch it because like on a Friday or Saturday night when it's like, oh, let's pop popcorn and watch a movie. It's not going to be silence. So well, no, because the you're not going to hear silence. You're going to hear the crunching of popcorn. Yes. Um, uh, one movie that we actually did, my wife and I uh, did watch on, we had both like taken a day off from work um, and it was like both of, or like uh, my, our daughter, we didn't have two kids at the time. Daughter was in, uh, was at like daycare or something and we watched The Irishman. <laughs> okay. Do you want to know how I watched The Irishman? Sure. So this was right after Scorsese had made a stink about how movies are not meant to be watched on a phone. They're meant to be watched in the cinema. And I don't, cinema. and I don't like disagree, but I feel like the way that it came across was like extremely, uh, elitist. Yeah. And not understanding, uh, not keeping up with the way that culture is. And I watched the Irishman in its entirety on my phone while Just to spite him. while at jury duty, <laughs> which I feel like is the extra like twist of the knife to be like, screw you. Not only am I watching it in a like on a phone, but I'm watching it in a place that's like impossible to relax in. <laughs> but also it's like, I really didn't like that movie. Uh, I was so bored, not just because I was in jury duty. I was... The story didn't capture me. I uh, felt like it was for Scorsese fans and nobody else. There, um, I know that there's a lot of like uh, visual nods in it to movies like you know Casino or Goodfellas, and you know it's it's going back to that era a little bit. I mean, you know, it's the return of Joe Pesci and you know right. Robert De Niro, and it's De Niro, and it's and it's Pacino. Yeah. It's Pacino working with Scorsese for the first time. So but it basically is. It's for those people who, you know, whether they've been like following his career or just like the people who it's like, oh, boy, De Niro and Pacino together. I'm going to watch that. I mean, you know, I these are all things that that intrigued me about it. Um, yeah. I I did not. And I, I totally agree with you. It, it is for Scorsese fans. And if I was not a Scorsese fan, I would not have appreciated it i also i really feel that um the kind of carte blanche he has with running time is not does not work in his favor (laughs) uh no i yeah that one i don't really the only things that i remember about it and the only things that you hear people talk about with it are how distracting the visual effects are right how terrible the de-aging is yeah uh Mm-hmm. And that is not a good legacy for a movie to have. No, 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 no. It should have been, like, I think he honestly could have made that movie really well, but he, like, with other actors and with more, like, the Scorsese of the 90s would have done a hell of a job Yeah, with that movie. But now, just, like, being able to be just kind of, like, just, like, take all that time and also do all that the aging and the de-aging and it's so gimmicky yeah. and distracting and at least it does not look like killers of the flower moon is going in that direction and it yeah. also looks like scorsese is being um the casting is representative 
I'm intrigued. Of the cultures it, being portrayed. I, I'm intrigued. And, you know, you get your DiCaprio, as we were saying before. Um, you, you got your De Niro. You yeah. got your Plemons. Okay. When we got to talk about Plemons. Okay. First of all, shout out to everybody who's been buying your Jesse Plemons always delivers shirts on our T public store. We've been getting a few sales for those ones recently. So, uh, and actually talking about uh, that HBO series, love and death. He's excellent in it. Yeah. So Jesse Plemons, he's great. Fucking a. Um, so anyway, John, and also I watched game night again recently. Mm, mm, mm. Chef's kiss. Jesse Plemons. Go on, Dan. All right. So, um, Speaking of of running time, uh, that brings us to after hours, which oh after hours, which which does have a brisk. I don't have the running time at at my fingertips right now. I'm it's like, hour forty, maybe ninety seven like, minutes, ninety seven minutes, and yeah. and I mean, of course, this running time pretty much is what this movie is, especially the the third act. <laughs> it yeah, is running time so, for. So why don't I give a very brief synopsis and then we'll kind of walk through the cast list because that tells a really interesting story in itself. Oh, so it so does. Yeah. What's a typical night like for Paul Hackett? Hard to say, but one night in particular is unlike all the rest. After working a typical day at his dead end pencil pushing job, Paul meets a charming woman named Marcy at a diner who takes notice of his book, Tropic of Cancer. Marcy casually mentions her friend's artistic craft and explains that he can buy her art by calling a particular phone number. After he returns home, he makes a move that sets him on a course for the wildest night of his life. He calls the number. That's it. That's all I wrote, because how can you possibly just, like, really crunch down the the events to, to follow? Yeah, I mean, he just he makes this phone call that just sets things in motion yeah. that and it and he ends up right where he starts. Oh, uh, beautifully. And beautiful. Okay. And so After Hours stars Griffin Dunn, who's um, he's amazing, he's perfect. He was a producer on the film, I think before even Scorsese got involved. I uh, I love a movie like this where it's a director, especially at the time this is made. That, you know, you might think of him with certain actors and in a certain vibe, but Griffin Dunn kind of doesn't fit that mold. And I know that he's done other movies, as Scorsese had done other movies that, you know, but for a New York movie like this, I feel like to go with somebody like Griffin Dunn, who's, you know, just a normal guy, just like he comes across as a very normal guy. And if you don't know who Griffin Dunn is. He's one of those people where like, if you saw him, you would be like, Oh, that guy, um, you know, yeah, roll into our archives and check out the, who's that girl episode. <laughs> well, who's that girl? Yeah. Uh, definitely. But you also have, you know, he was we, a American lot of people, werewolf in London. American werewolf in London is great. There is a nod to it in after hours. I'm, I'm like, oh, this is there? cannot be a coincidence. <laughs> there's a there's a line. I um uh, when he goes into the subway when he's in the subway station, the transit cop goes, "Must be a full moon out there." Oh, uh, oh it's <laughs> after he like runs out of the subway station. The transit cop says it to like the MTA oh, work, that's funny. worker. Uh, um, and I was like, that, that has to be intentional because I think at that time that's what he was most known for was American yeah. Werewolf in London, in which he's great. Yeah. Um, but for a lot of people, when I'm trying to explain to them who Griffin Dunn is, I say he's the teacher from My Girl. 
that she has a crush on. Oh, yeah. And yes. that's, I think, uh, especially for our generation, maybe people closer to my age, uh, that's a more identifiable role than something like American Werewolf. Um, well, yeah, yes, yes. But, I would say, you know, he's yeah. also the kind of person who shows up in a lot. He was in Succession in the maybe first season. He, you know, had a, a bit part. Like, he shows up in a lot of things. He's really charismatic. Uh, he's handsome, but not distractingly handsome. Uh, and this role is so great for him because he can look really cleaned up and he can also look really disheveled and out of it. And it doesn't take you out of his character at all. What I love about him in this movie is he's the guy who, um, always try, you know, he's in over his head and you and you know that perhaps the most when he's trying to act like he isn't. Yeah. He always, it's, it, there's always this hesitation. It's was, it was kind of like I was listening to um, uh, an episode of the podcast, The Movies That Made Me. Mm. And uh, it was W. Kamau Bell was talking about um, Denzel Washington. Oh, and yeah. how Denzel Washington is how movies where he's not always in control. It's like, it's always surprising because you see Denzel and like you expect him. It's like, he's got everything under control. And with Griffin Dunn, it's the opposite. He's in over his head. And you notice that like when he's trying to be assertive, it's like, oh, this is not, this is going to backfire. He also has a way about him. And it's something in the way that he presents himself where he's not making good decisions. And there are a lot of times where you're just like, Oh, if you would have just said this instead, it would have gone so much better for you. Uh, but he has this presence about him where you're just like, I, I want him to do well. I want him to succeed. Right. He see, he comes across as, you know, a, a good person, even though his decisions show you he's not a good person. It's kind of like Larry, it's kind of like Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's like you're rooting for him, even though you're like, oh God, you asshole. Yeah. Oh (laughs) my God. So let's let's keep on rolling through this cast. So Rosanna Arquette plays Marcy, who's fantastic. She's great. great. Um, It's, it's so sad that we, didn't see as much of Rosanna Arquette as, you know, we should have, um, you know, definitely a, a family to be reckoned with the Arquettes. Um, and I think she's the eldest Arquette. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, um, Patricia Patricia and Hey, speaking and, um, pour one out for Alexis. Yeah, of course. Um, of course, but Louis the patriarch. <laughs> you know, you mentioned uh, who's that girl? Desperately seeking Susan. Yes. that's Rosanna Arquette, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and then also going back to bringing out the dead, we had Patricia Arquette, right? So yeah. Scorsese, um, not averse to working with the Arquette. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, David Arquette was in Airheads, which we talked about recently. That's all I got there. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, we have uh, Cheech and Chong as. Pepe and Neil, who are, uh, it's hard to explain. They are thieves, but they are also uh, purchasers <laughs> of fine artwork and <laughs> and television sets. But they are kind of like, kind of running along the side of of Paul's evening 
it's kind of shadows. It's kind of like there's a Cheech and Chong movie happening in the background of After Hours. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And, uh, you know, at the time, it... It's it's funny that they were that they were in this movie, but just kind of as different people. I don't know. Like, well, and this was the... I this was I think like kind of before they I guess they they parted ways um, a bit. Like, I don't think there were uh-huh. any Cheech and Chong movies after this. Uh, so yeah, unless does Chong show up in Born in East L.A.? No, I, no. I do not believe so. No. Uh, um, nor does nor does Cheech show up in Far Out Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. What's a okay, job? so we have uh, Linda Fiorentino as Kiki, who's the yeah. uh, the artist who creates these bagel and cream cheese uh, paperweights out of paper mache, and uh, is is living with Marcy temporarily because Marcy is going through difficult times with her boyfriend who we find out is uh, the bartender played by John Hurd in a weird series of coincidences. Um, Yeah. Who's kind of like maybe the most like, just like the most sympathetic character in the whole movie. (laughs) I think so. He's, he is a truly nice person from what we see. Uh, you know, he uh, he sees this down-on-his-luck guy who comes in, doesn't have uh, a penny to his name. Well, he's got, like... Doesn't have any cash on him. Yeah. And, and it's you know, he's going to help him out. So. He trusts him with his house keys to, like, go and get a cash register key so he can... You know, and it's this, it's this whole thing. Um, there's just this series of events that keeps on going and going and going. Uh, I, I should also mention uh, Kiki's partner Horst who's played by Will Patton Will Patton Uh, Will Patton who of Armageddon of Minari uh yeah Minari Minari Minari. I loved him in Minari he's great in that uh Will Patton's been in so much uh Armageddon may be his biggest box office movie probably yeah but yeah yeah, he randomly pops up in this but go on because there's more well we have Terry Gar who plays a waitress at the bar that John Hurd is the bartender for, and she uh, gets Paul to, you know, come up to her apartment. He tries to, like, use the phone and is just kind of waiting out there until the bartender gets back to open up the bar so he can get his keys. And she is in her own world. She's, you know, kind of stuck in the 60s, has a beehive hairdo, and... Listens to the monkeys. (laughs) Listens to the monkeys. Uh, She is an artist who ends up drawing the sketch of Paul that becomes his wanted poster. Yes. uh, As he is suspected for a string of robberies happening in... uh, they're in, they're in Soho, right? Soho. Yeah. Well, the original title of this, it was written as a graduate thesis at Columbia University. The original title, One Night in Soho. That's really funny. So well, I have no doubt Edgar Wright was very yeah. intentional with Last Night yeah. in Soho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then kind of one of the ringleaders of the kind of manhunt to find Paul as he is uh, being, you know, is, is trying to 
get home really is Catherine O'Hara, yeah. who plays another of a string of women who tries to help him out and, uh, you know, lets him use her phone and she's very proud of her Mr. Frosty truck or whatever it is, her ice cream truck. Mr. Softy. She, she's got that's Mr. a Softy. legit Mr. Softy truck. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, what's funny is again, it was so random Tim Burton because, uh, she ends up working with Tim Burton just a couple of years later in Beetlejuice. Yeah. yeah. Another Tim Burton, but we're not talking about Tim. Burton. We're not here to talk about Tim Burton. Yeah. Uh, also want to mention Verna Bloom as June. Who plays, who is in Last Temptation of Christ, who plays oh. Mary. But oh, Jesus really? Mother Mary, Interesting. not Mary Magdalene. The Virgin Mary, yes. allegedly. Mm. Um, not <laughs> and so, movie. and so, June plays this woman who lives underneath a. Um, it's like a like an S and M club, an S and M club, right? but like industrial, Lounge. like gothy kind of uh, bar. Yeah, yeah, Art and. And then, but it's funny because as soon as the typical patrons, it's like Mohawk night at this punk bar. And then as soon as everybody clears out, it is just June uh, smoking a cigarette who makes uh, sculptural art very similar to Kiki's. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, analysis that is uh, trying to, presume that the two are one and the same, but I don't know. There's a lot of analysis of this movie because there, you know, a lot of it is very metaphorical. I mean, a lot of people think like, Oh, Paul is dead the entire time and he's in hell. And that's, I mean, there, this Soho is kind of meant to represent hell. Mm -hmm. I, as he is in the taxi cab going downtown from, I think he's supposed to be on like the Upper East Side. Yeah. Uh, and he's on this, in this frenzied cab ride and it's his descent into hell. And he's trying to get out. He's trying to get out, but he's unable to do it. Everything is working against him. He, the, the subway fare increases $2.50 at midnight that day. Uh, and so he's unable to afford to take the subway. Um, and yeah, you just have this series of events that just brings him further and further. There's all of these, uh, hints toward fire and burns. And, uh, it's just oh, yeah. like the, you know, he, he very easily could fall into a trap where he gets a burn. He tells the story about when he was a kid and had his tonsils out and, you know, there was only room in the burn ward and they, the nurse kept a blindfold on him. And, you know, it's, it's all of these kind of dances with, with the devil really. Interesting. Do you, do you buy into those theories? Like, are you, well, the, the hell theory I buy into only because I heard Scorsese talk about it. Oh so, <laughs> yeah. He did like a commentary track that you can find on YouTube and that's, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. The right. the thing about the burns he doesn't go into, but or at least not that I heard. Um, but I mean, it makes sense. So it's what's funny is, and of it's like you know, I, I it's good to know. I like to know like what a filmmaker is intending. What I think something about this movie, um, 
and I don't know if Scorsese would agree, but it's like you could look at it in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think this most recent time that I watched it, I thought about it a lot in terms of Scorsese's career and Scorsese as a filmmaker with kind of an identity crisis huh. as like, you know, he's, you know, like as he's going through and some, some of this discussion kind of comes from uh, this other uh, podcast I was listening to that was kind of going into Scorsese's filmography, but talking about how in the seventies, like, you know, he was kind of part of that group of yeah. filmmakers that, you know, Coppola, Lucas, Spielberg, De Palma. Um, sure. And yeah. how, you know, by the end of the 70s, you had Spielberg and Lucas going into this, like, um, this territory of, uh, you know, these huge blockbusters. Adventure movies. Yeah. yeah. And, but just, like, these big, like, you know, summer blockbusters they invented the summer blockbuster yeah. <laughs> did lucas and spielberg and then you have um you know scorsese who's you know uh he has some some he makes a dent there with taxi driver and, and raging bull um but then like king of comedy bob had bombed and like new york new york bombed and you have this guy who's like, no one is hiring him. And he's kind of like, oh, I have so much more to do with my with my art. I have so much more to say. And meanwhile, like, you know, Spielberg's just churning out like fucking Close Encounters and, and E.T. And Lucas is just doing Star Wars and, and Star Wars and Star Wars <laughs> and producing Indiana Jones. Well, something that... Well, okay, just kind of going along these uh this topic where you're you're kind of speaking about this this generation of director mm -hmm. really shepherding in a new wave of American cinema. And if you look at movies from like the late 60s and early 70s, you have a lot of films that are dealing with, you know, counterculture, you know, easy rider, things like that. A, a lot of movies that are focusing on civil rights and uh, kind of allegories for civil rights. Um, tonally, you, uh, you kind of have, uh, either very like campy, uh, you know, Oh, going to the movies. It's just like, you know, it's, it's just for a, a romp, you know, that kind of a thing with a dipping a toe into these very serious, you know, dramatic turns. And, but you don't have a lot of directors, like auteur directors. We're kind of coming out of Hitchcock's, you know, era. Uh, we're, we're kind of in a space where it's like, all right, well, what's the next, who are the, what's the next thing? And you do have this cluster this fa this this fascinating cluster of some that are, you know are very different from one another, some that are very similar. Uh, clearly, Spielberg and and Lucas, you know, worked together a lot on things, and they were super close friends. And and Coppola, Coppola produced uh, American Graffiti. Yeah, and Coppola, who then of course you know does The Godfather, <laughs> and yeah. there's a lot of crossover in in vibe between Coppola's work and Scorsese's work, and. Uh, you know, a lot of the same actors kind of going in those. And it's this, it's kind of like these new kids on the block. <laughs> like, See, of, uh, 
late 70s directors. It's funny. You say, you know, they're the new kids on the block. Uh, Whereas I think of it's kind of like Scorsese and Coppola are Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Uh, You know, where they're covering, I think they're covering, they've got like similar themes, but they're going in different directions with it. Yeah. Of course, but like Coppola does the godfather and the godfather part two which are mind-blowing in their scale and then at the same time does the conversation which is so that's what i was talking about minimalistic yeah oh absolutely uh coppola i think is is definitely uh, i'm saying that like i have some sort of like epiphany thing to say but it's like you know he's he, he comes across as being a more diverse director in his style even though we just went over all of martin scorsese's films and it's like clearly you know it's like you know dangerous liaisons you know is very very different from what's dangerous that? liaisons not dangerous liaisons oh my god age of innocence is what age I of innocence to say. <laughs> michelle total pfeiffer. brain fart michelle pfeiffer michelle pfeiffer there, there you, you go. go and so uh you have age of innocence and daniel casino Day-Lewis would have been great in malkovich's role though daniel Day-Lewis is great anyway. in everything um, but what I was kind of going with is that like we're in this kind of crossover era where there are a lot of these great movies that are being made in like the early to mid 70s coming out of the late 60s. All the President's Men being one of them. Uh, Badlands being another. Oh, fucking and, Malik. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Chimino coming up there. Yeah. And I, I think that this these directors coming in who have a very different kind of perspective, uh, Martin's like Martin Scorsese. And I think that that's really what shines, you know, his, his version of New York is, you know, uh, it's a different take. And even though we see it in movies like, you know, raging bull and taxi driver, and it's the same New York kind of as after hours, but you see a very different version of it. You see a version where there's nobody out on the streets. It's fascinating. It's a very, it's actually, and you're making me think about like the, just the geography of New York city Mm -hmm. and, and the boroughs and thinking about how his movies cover different areas of New York city where taxi driver strays between like midtown. Like I think like the, like I think like the, the office where Sybil Shepherd work is works is like around Columbus circle. But the building where, um, you know, Harvey Keitel kind of sets up shop that I actually used to live around the corner from that building. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's down uh, on the Lower East Side. I want to say it's um, by like 13th uh, between like Avenue A and Avenue B or Avenue A and First. Um, I know like we went like I lived down there. So like we walked past. I was like, yeah, no, that's where like, you know, the pimp was. <laughs> Yikes. And, and that's where all like, the, you know, the crazy shootout and taxi driver is. Um, So taxi. But so like there's taxi driver that covers that area after hours, which I mean, of course, covered Soho yeah. and like that downtown, which Soho now is viewed as more like upscale. Oh, but then every then downtown, okay. like south of 14th Street was like gritty. And well, grimy. let's let's talk a little bit about. Soho in 1984, 1985, yeah. uh, the version of it that they show here, you know, you see this loft that Kiki is living in and doing her work, and you're just like, oh, that's supposed to look like a rundown, like, I don't know, maybe an artist could afford to live here kind of place. 
that would be a zillion dollars today, a month to oh. rent. <laughs> you know, Eas- uh, absolutely. Eas- and then easily. And then what around the corner from there is like Terry Gar's shoebox apartment. That's probably just as expensive. Easily. Yeah. Not then. <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. So no. it's it's one of those movies that is a it's a really good way to identify an era of a very specific neighborhood. Uh, yeah. So it it so is, uh, and, and looking at the film as, as this guy who's like out of place there. He's supposed to be like a yuppie, you know, you see his apartment for a little bit at the beginning and it's like his furniture is very sterile and it like comes as a set. And well, you know who he reminds me of, and especially in his apartment, Edward Norton and Fight oh, Club. Oh, yeah. Ordered everything from a catalog. I was like, these two are peas in a pot. I was like, you know, I was like, I wonder, I'm like, how much of Fight Club, it, at least like, you know, in terms of the, the film, uh, you know, it's like, how much of it is, you know, how much did was Fincher thinking about After Hours? That's a good question. Uh, but it also makes me think, and it's like, it's even when he's like, he even says it when he's doing the paper mache and he's helping Kiki and he's, I feel like a real Soho artist. Mm-hmm. Um, But it made me think a lot of Scorsese at this period in his career and like kind of the, what am I doing? Like I made my name doing this type of thing, but that's not working. Like my last collaboration with my, my last two collaborate or two of my three last collaborations with De Niro did not work out well financially. So, and this is what I've heard from different, you know, interviews and everything, but it's like Scorsese at this time in his life had just moved out of you know, this area, you know, he kind of like grew up around Soho, not exactly this particular type of vibe, but, uh, and went from there to Tribeca. And once he was in Tribeca, he was like, this isn't me. This isn't who I am. And so the kind of the journey of Paul, who's like, you know, he, you see him on his first you see, sorry, you see him on somebody else's first day of work, played by Bronson Pinchot, uh, yeah. and he's training him how to do this job, and Bronson Pinchot is just like, oh, well, I mean, it's not like I have to, like, remember this. I'm going to be out of here in a month anyway. You know, he's like, oh, oh, don't tell the boss I said that, but, like, I'm just here to pass the time until something else comes along. And Which I was looking – Oh, no, no, no. We'll come back to that real quick. But uh, yeah. the whole idea is, you know, it's getting into the head of, of Paul – who is like, am I wanting to be here? Like, am, am I, have I chosen a life that would otherwise be somebody else's, you know, stepping stone to something else? Have I chosen mm-hmm. to just be complacent and, yeah, I collect a paycheck and live where I live? Or is there more to life? And when he's given that opportunity by this random person at a coffee shop, then, uh, even though it's 1130 at night on a school night, he goes to work the next day. <laughs> uh, you know, he takes that chance and, and it, and he kind of experiences life. Uh, even if it's meant to be experiencing he's, death, he's Scorsese directing after yeah. hours and he's, he, he no, no, go ahead. Cause if oh, once I start, well, I'm going to keep uh, going. I'm just going to mention that, you know, this film was written by uh, Joseph Minion, uh, based on a story by Joe Frank, 
Um, Joe Frank was a radio personality who create and and it's it's interesting because I'm seeing like story by Joe Frank, but I don't think that it's like official at the time. But I think in retrospect, it's kind of become like, oh, this is based on a story that he told on a radio show in which he kind of goes into this very like poetic and expressive uh, story about, you know, this woman who makes bagel and cream cheese paperweights. And so, and I think that so, so like mid eighties, like paper mache bagel, bagels and oh, cream yeah. cheese paperweights. Like I can imagine our mother, like, like personalizing them <laughs> with her, like paint pens. Yeah. Um, and so uh, let's get personal. Yeah. And <laughs> so uh, this was a project that was kind of, presented to Martin Scorsese and once he kind of went on to it definitely shaped it to make it really feel like him telling also his own story right it, which I totally feel like all the paper mache stuff I look at the newspapers and I feel like it's reviews and critics and all the things that are written about him and his work and it's kind of like well what would you love to do right and it's kind of he's kind of like I'm making art tearing like, up and turning something else all these, all this shit and I am going to make it into art. Um, the, uh, the end when Paul is inside, yeah. uh, the, the June's, uh, creation. And it's, it's like, it's like him being confined by the media and by the press yeah. and him being held back by all those. And then he's able to break. It's kind of like he's out, he leaves his comfort zone so that he can go back to his comfort zone in a better frame of mind. Uh, a little worse for wear, but sure. Well, a, little wor- <laughs> a little worse for wear, but it's also, but it's also like him, like, you know, do I, what choices do I make? Am I going to be this, like, am I just going to stay like this hip independent artist? Am I going to go? And what's interesting is he follows this up with color of money. Yeah. You know, big budget star vehicle for Paul Newman and Tom right. Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so Martin Scorsese is still, you know, early in his career. He's still trying but, to figure out how to make the movies he wants to make. Yeah, but when he made Color of Money, he wasn't just like, I'm not just going to make this some paint-by-numbers shit. Like, I'm going to make this. Well, this is good. As we said, I haven't like, seen it, so I, I can't speak to that. No, no, no. And it's what's interesting is something I love about After Hours is a lot of the, you know, choices, a lot of the editing and a lot of the, the like, the, the where he does that really quick, like, you know, cl- um, close in on a character yeah. or an object. Like, he does it with the phone in Cape Fear. He does it a ton in Goodfellas. And I love how that style is here in after I think hours. The very first shot is kind of going through his office and landing on Paul and yep. it makes you feel very uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. it really says from the jump, from the very first shot, you're about to go on a, a ride and it's going to make you feel yes. uneasy. Yes. Yes. And you're going to be frustrated and you're, and, but at the end of the day, it will have been worth it. Yeah. I think I think that's the question at the end of the day for Paul is like, was it all worth it? And I, I think when he when you see him walking in, of course, you know, it, it, if he's been dead the whole time. Well, no, him point, being but... dead the whole time is somebody else's theory that I don't I don't believe that one. Um, oh, but just like that's his, his personal yeah. hell. That he's gone yeah. through. Right. And when you go, right, you go through hell and you come back stronger, you come back scarred. But that's the whole thing about like scar tissue yeah. being 
uh, being tougher and the metaphor of scars and like how many scars, how much was Scorsese scarred by critical reception, public reception of films like New York, New York and King of Comedy. Right. Well, and that, you know, it's making me think about the scene because we we are led to believe that Marcy has some history of being in a fire and being and having burn wounds. Uh, Fairly recently. So, okay. So uh, we see a book in her bedroom. That's all about, you know, you know, burn injuries. Uh, She uh, has a cream an ointment for burns. He, Mm -hmm. he sees what appears to be a burn on her leg. But after Marcy is found, dead he lifts up a sheet and she's not wearing any clothes and he sees that what he thought was a burn is actually a tattoo and she doesn't have any burns on her body and for paul that's you know at that point he is playing with the idea of you know having a romantic encounter with her but at what cost is this a damaged person who's you know been through some really bad shit and gotten burned really bad. Is that going, does that Mm -hmm. mean that he is, you know, putting himself in a position where he's in danger and uh, ultimately deciding to run away from that? uh, When he comes back, he realizes, Oh, that was nothing at all. That was all in my head. Um, And yeah, uh, I'm curious to know what you think about, if you think that that has anything to do with maybe Martin Scorsese's approach to, you know, his films and maybe coming off of some uh, box office failures. Um. So yeah, interesting. He, uh, so he being Paul, in this, uh, you know, sees the. Um, Right, he kind of gets freaked out, and he tells the story about about the the burn, um, the burn unit being in the yeah. burn unit. Um, so when he, you know, in trying to think of it, are you are you saying like, you know, how, how do I see it in terms of like? Well, I'm curious because you're drawing parallels between Martin Scorsese's career and his approach to making this movie. And this idea of scarring and being burned is that, I mean, because the way that I'm thinking about it is, is almost like what's in his head is worse than the reality. Well, and it's kind of like, I wonder how much hesitance, hesitancy, reluctance he had to take on directing this film. And I wonder if this felt like for him, like, hmm, am I, am I t- getting in a cab and heading downtown into the unknown? Well, he, which Paul does. And he, like, he took this movie because he couldn't do last temptation of Christ. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, he yeah, couldn't work on the thing that he's been wanting to work on for years. But it's also like maybe among other things or just like taking you know deciding to do this was that him saying like i am gonna like i need to be a risk taker and maybe he didn't feel like he took the right risks on king of comedy or maybe he feel like maybe he felt like he took the wrong risks on like new york new york king of comedy and that this spoke to him as somebody who like who takes risks and they don't end up working Mm -hmm. out per se 
so it's kind of like, is he, is he looking at that? Is he then feeling like maybe certain projects that seem scary aren't really so scary? Um, and you know, just because you've been burned once or twice, like, are you, you know, are you going to go back into the fire? Yeah. Are you, are you going to jump back into the fire? Um, so there's a lot of ways you could go with it and analyze it. It def to me, it definitely felt like it was Scorsese. Like even with the the score and the soundtrack, with like using composed music, but also having of uh, like the punk um, music that you hear in the club. Yeah, to the monkeys. There's no Rolling Stones. <laughs> well, I I know that Martin Scorsese is is known for you know thinking about the music as you know a script is really being written and and making yeah. sure to insert things you know where it's like oh on this page it's it's definitely going to be the monkeys you know i i so in this one the the music i feel like uh the monkeys and also the song that plays in the jukebox at club berlin when he's dancing with june are the two like identifiable oh, yeah. because that's all about getting burned that's going into a fire. I don't remember what this. Oh wait, was that play with fire? Was that Rolling Stones? No, it wasn't Shit. Rolling Stones. <laughs> okay, I was like, did he use Rolling Stones play with fire in that? I didn't. I didn't think so. I'm gonna see if I can find uh, what that song was. Um, uh, let's see. Um, is it is it Chelsea? Is it is it the Joni Mitchell? Oh, it might be Joni Mitchell. Chelsea Morning. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, but he's got like, there's classical on there. There's like someone to watch over me. Um, oh, right. We Belong Together, Angel yep. Baby, the songs that are playing in the bar. Um, right. Last Train to Clarksville, the uh, the monkey's song. Uh, oh, wait. Uh, Joni Mitchell, I Don't Know Where I Stand, is at Lucy's apartment. Uh that's the uh that's Terry Gar's character. Um do, 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 do. Right. Oh right. She changes it from the monkeys yeah. to that. Yes. And uh, yeah, this is uh let's see, one summer night, the the Dan Lears. It's a it's a good soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. Uh um Oh sorry, uh Is That All These Is is by is Peggy Lee. That's the song that they're dancing to. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Oh, yes. There we go. Uh, all right. Yeah. So after hours, uh, it's it's a it's a great movie. It it and it just really is one of those that if you're doing a retrospective of Scorsese's career and you want to show his versatility, I love that this. I love that in this movie, that going back to the casting that he's that he's putting people like Catherine O'Hara yeah. and Cheech and Chong in there. Because Catherine O'Hara at this point was pretty much known for SCTV. Yeah, say Second City, yeah. SCTV. Yeah. So, like, you've got you've got her in there, you've got Cheech and Chong, these, uh, you know, comedians. Terry Garr, who was mostly known for doing comedy. Tootsie, I mean, Young Frankenstein, yeah. Tootsie, Mr. Mom, uh, which right. I don't... I, oh, yeah, that had come before this. So, um... 
you know, it's really, oh, and then it just occurred to me. I was like, oh, I wonder, did John Hurd and Joe Pesci on Home Alone uh, <laughs> talk about their experiences with Scorsese? Maybe they did. Maybe they did. So, yeah. Dan, uh, you know, talking about going back into the fire, uh, what could you see doing with After Hours these days? I don't know. I would love to hear. I would I I would love to I like either read a book or just hear like a a podcast like a season of a podcast that talks about like movies like behind the scenes whether it's like origins or something like that. Um I would love to hear the story of like the making of this movie. Um you know, just more about the casting, more about um, you know, people's reactions to it, the script development, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. I, I, I think there's that. I do think it would, it would make, uh, interesting fodder for theater. I don't know if, if it would be musical theater or just a drama and like a, a theatrical experiment following, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways you could do it. I almost imagine it like it's a psychological journey, like, uh, God damn it. I don't know why this play is coming into my mind, but Wojciech, mm-hmm. um, which Werner Herzog yeah. uh, adapted to film with Klaus Kinski, <laughs> fittingly. Um, but just almost a mad, like really using theater to like, you know, illustrate Paul's, experience and having like maybe a more grotesque like mr softy truck uh-huh. be like you know the, the central set piece that comes out i so i i feel like there's that i i really don't think there's any call to do a, a uh, any type of sequel um there's plenty of characters whose backstories i'm sure would be fascinating enough to uh support an entire story rosanna arquette yeah. marcy's uh backstory perhaps um so th- but that's pretty much where i land on this john what uh, what do you think well part of me wanted to do something surrounding lloyd Bronson Pinchot's character who talks about his goals for what he wants to do with his life. And it's just like, Oh, what if we just followed that guy, you know, but uh, that really wouldn't be true to the, you know, the feeling of after hours. And so for me, (laughs) what I was thinking was, would be a, what? He, he winds up working in Hollywood, right? Because didn't didn't he want to go into some type of uh, oh, yeah. like writing? He wanted to start his own magazine, start his own in magazine, Hollywood, yeah. and so, ends up with a bunch of cocaine in his car. And, uh, true romance. And he's in yeah. true romance. So yeah, uh, what I was really thinking was, uh, you know, it is a 40 years later sequel. We have Paul, um, who has barely left his house in 40 years, his apartment. He's terrified of what would happen if he takes any risks or, you know, does anything really. Uh, Yeah. He uh, essentially, you know, does the same type of work that he was doing before word processing, which I, I think that if he's still in the word processing industry, in 2023 then it's it begs the question of is he even alive is he even doing anything is he he, ai yeah is he ai um and so chat g paul t and so uh he's you know afraid to do anything and then uh, 
uh, out of nowhere, one evening, his very dusty landline telephone rings and he hears a voice on the other end. And uh, it is, without a doubt, Marcy's voice. We know that she's dead. Mm-hmm. Or so we think. We're pretty sure she's dead. You know, we see her body. We get confirmation from other people that, you know, Marcy has killed herself. But whether it's his imagination or not, he hears this voice. And for the first time in 40 years, he is compelled to uh, leave his home. And, uh, of course, it sets him on a new course for the next new worst night of his life. What if she just says you forgot your paperweight? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I I don't know what necessarily ensues from there, but I feel like uh, we need more Griffin done, and this is a good. We're not way to do done it. with we done. Are we are not. It would be interesting uh, to see that, especially if he's kind of also avoided the development of technology. If he's kind of like a, if he's just been a shut in and he's just like kind of leaving for almost, I'm, I'm imagining like being there. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, he, you know, the, the world is very foreign to him. Uh, New York is a very different New York. Uh, maybe he does go back to some of the same places where he was at 40 years in the past. And, you know, club Berlin is like some, you know, swanky hangout. Or, you know, like the bar that John Heard, you know, was a bartender at has become this like super bougie urban outfitters. Yeah, kind of a place like that. I mean, urban outfitters, which is not super bougie. Also, urban outfitters, I think no one uh, has, you know, given them a a minute of time in the past 15 years. Oh, is, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm remembering as like the lower as like the east village was kind of being uh, gentrified uh the urban outfitters uh always kind of stuck out like there was like an urban outfitters not far from like saint mark's place it, which maybe it's one of those right. like amazon stores where you don't have to pay a cashier oh, you know it's like you just walk, you just walk in, in and, and they take like, stuff and you know, walk out you know <laughs> scan you and steal your genetic yeah, code yeah it's probably it's probably yeah. something like that you know that's no it's just so amazing. it's it's post human oh yeah he doesn't know what to do yeah and he's entered a a new a new hell you know it's it's a world that's completely foreign to him um hell of 2023 i don't know that's what i got i i okay i think that this is a movie that uh if something new came about for it i'd be i'd be very intrigued by it I think you know there's a lot of people who would be I think After Hours is one of one of the those films that you know has uh become just more well revered with not a big box office hit certainly but um you know it's I'm like filmmakers when they talk about their favorite films After Hours frequently comes up and especially when we talk about Scorsese and Scorsese's like, you know, maybe his lesser celebrated films that are equally as good. Uh, you know, he said bringing out the dead before, but after hours is really kind of first on that list. Well, also this is a movie that comes up in conversations about movies that take place all in one night. You know, uh, this is a big one. Yeah. Which is funny. It's in my, like, you know, when I, 
have time to actually open up creative writing projects. There actually was something I was working on that was like loosely based on the, the idea of after hours oh, yeah. and somebody just kind of on a, on an adventure for the night in Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, set in the, in the mid nineties. Oh, okay. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, that after hours, man, great movie has recently entered the criterion collection. Yes. Uh, I'm very curious to know what uh, bonus features that's got. Um, Dan, do you want to tell our dear, dear listeners what we're doing on our next episode of the podcast? Well, we're going from acclaimed filmmaker Martin Scorsese. Um, no, uh, we are going to be taking a look. What? What? Go ahead. We're okay. You say we're going from acclaimed director. We're also going to, I mean, maybe not director, but we're going to some minds that have gone on to, uh, or were around some other big successes. We'll talk about that on the next episode. Yeah. So our next episode is going to be talking about the 1991 uh, spy action comedy starring Richard Grieco. It's If Looks Could Kill, uh, co-starring Linda Hunt, mm-hmm. Roger Rees, uh, Gabrielle Anwar, um, d- a- a- and it's a just a fun little screenplay by right and and some creative uh, people working on it. Fred Decker, Fred Decker co- of the Monster yeah. Squad, and Darren Star of Sex. Darren and the Star, City. who created an empire, he created a cultural yes. phenomenon. No yes. slouch. So there's no slouch. There is some pedigree. No, there is some pedigree um to this film so if looks could kill uh from 1991 can't wait to talk about it john yeah uh and we certainly hope that everybody uh listens to the next episode it's gonna be a lot of fun uh check out our t public store we got some fun stuff on there uh feel free to email us with maybe your thoughts about after hours or any other of the films that we have talked about or Maybe if look could kill ruin childhood's and pod speaking, at gmail.com. Oh, and and speaking of, it makes me think of another movie that after hours reminds me of that we have talked about and that we have some, some merch associated with. So if you, if you want, like I was drugged and left for dead in Mexico and all I got was this lousy t-shirt um, from the Michael Douglas thriller, the game. Um, Somebody who goes uh, on a, a pretty wild ride. Yeah. Also, uh, you know, not you could you could definitely have a film festival with with that and After Hours and and a few others. Maybe even Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I could certainly make the make a case for it. Well, Dan, I feel like I could go in a lot of directions with this one for this particular movie, whereas I couldn't do it in the last in the last episode. Uh, as you are on a bizarre, fast taxi cab ride. Down to Soho, I wish you a good journey. Good journey.